Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Monday, January 22nd, 2024. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, a landslide in Yunnan province has buried at least 40 people as snow and cold hampers search and rescue efforts. Israel's prime minister has rejected a ceasefire proposal for the Gaza Strip that would have left Hamas in charge of the embattled enclave. And severe winter storms affecting much of the U.S. have killed scores of people. In business, China's efforts to develop the silver economy. In sports, looking ahead to the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. In culture and entertainment, a lantern fair in Shanghai's iconic Yuyuan Garden. Now checking the day's top stories. Efforts are ongoing in southwest China to find more people buried under the rubble after a landslide in Yunnan province on Monday. More than 40 people from 18 households are buried in Liangshui village. Local health authorities say several people are receiving treatment for their injuries. Sub-zero temperatures and continuous snowfall in the region are complicating search and rescue efforts. Chinese President Xi Jinping has ordered efforts to protect the lives and property of the people affected. Yunnan's launched a disaster relief emergency response. The Red Cross Society of China sent disaster relief supplies, including tents, quilts, and wind-resistant jackets to the affected area. A massive cold wave is descending on central and eastern China and pushing south. Most parts of the country are expecting significant temperature drops. The southern regions have already received heavy snow. Jiangxi province on the east coast has upgraded its meteorological disaster response. Icy conditions also continued in the, in, uh, in the southwest, where snow piled up in parts of Guizhou province. Meanwhile, in Fujian, authorities have issued a cold wave warning, as temperatures could plummet by as much as 15 degrees Celsius. The Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda is in Beijing for an official visit this week. This is Gaston Brown's second trip to China as Prime Minister following a visit in 2014. Uh, certainly to strengthen the bilateral relations between Antigua and Barbuda and the People's Republic of China. Uh, we'll be signing a cooperation agreement that will take the relationship to the next level. In fact, Antigua and Barbuda and the People's Republic of China, we enjoy perhaps one of the closest relationships of um, any large and small country. Uh, as you know, China has been very respectful of um, all countries, respective um, of size. And uh, China has been a great example um, for all countries globally in terms of its benevolence and the role that is played to ensure peaceful coexistence and at the same time to ensure global prosperity for all. China and the Caribbean country marked 40 years of diplomatic ties last year. China says it believes a visit will further enhance political mutual trust and deepen cooperation. Jamaica was the last stop of Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's first diplomatic tour of the year. Jamaica was one of the first Caribbean countries to establish diplomatic relations with China half a century ago. It's also the first country in the region to launch a strategic partnership with Beijing. Wang met Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Holness and Foreign Minister Kamina Johnson-Smith during the visit. Jamaica reiterated its endorsement of the One China Principle and willingness to further develop its partnership with China. Alistair Baverstock has more. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi was received on Saturday morning by Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Holness. We are final to celebrate 51 years of diplomatic relationship between our two countries. And we are very proud that Jamaica was the first country 
the English speaking characters who weapon mags in lunch and policy. Following his meeting with the Prime Minister, it was on to Jamaica's foreign ministry, where the two countries' top diplomats held a more in-depth discussion on bilateral cooperation. In particular, Jamaica's Foreign Minister Kamina Johnson-Smith expressed her thanks for China's solidarity during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, when tourism, a major economic driver to this Caribbean island, dropped off almost entirely. Once more, on behalf of the people and government of Jamaica, for the sincere appreciation for the unwavering commitment of China to the continued development of Jamaica and explore ways to deepen the already strong relationship. At a meeting held in a foreign ministry building built by Chinese engineers, Minister Wang Yi was complimentary to the government of one of its most valued partners in the Caribbean region. He told his Jamaican counterpart of his belief that the brand new building on Kingston's seafront has become a symbol of China-Jamaican relations and that inside its walls the two countries would continue to face new challenges and create new opportunities together. For Jamaica's Chinese community, they see the diplomatic visit as an opportunity for this developing Caribbean nation to learn the lessons its Asian partner can teach. What we need to do in Jamaica is to try to emulate the development strategy that was adopted by China. It's about peace, peaceful development and also to create win-win relationship to realize that dream. Following more than 50 years of diplomatic relations and five years of strategic partnership, China and Jamaica have set the tone with this diplomatic visit for their relations going forward into 2024 and beyond. That was Alistair Baverstock on the Chinese Foreign Minister's visit to Jamaica. Chinese Vice Premier Liu Guajiang is attending a group of 77 plus China summit that's looking to bolster South-South cooperation. The gathering's in Uganda. The theme is leaving no one behind. Nick Madimba has more from Kampala. Earlier in the week, senior officials met to consider the draft outcome document of the third South summit. Uganda has assumed the chairmanship of the group of 77 plus China from Cuba, which held the mantle for the past one year. United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres advised Global South countries to demand their rights and negotiate their clear position from the rich Global North countries. Today, you are the largest grouping of the Global South, representing 80% of the world's population. And your solidarity and partnership are essential to building a sustainable, peaceful and just world for all. A world in which the United Nations Charter, international law and human rights prevail in global relations. According to the UN chief, many G77 groups are grappling with economic challenges resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic, crippling debts, a cost of living crisis and a sky-high borrowing costs. Chinese Vice Premier Liu Guzhong emphasized the need for global South countries to be more assertive with the shared common interest borrowed from BRICS, which realized the historic expansion that strengthened the momentum of solidarity and cooperation among emerging markets. President Xi Jinping pointed out that South-South cooperation is a great undertaking by developing countries to seek strength from unity. We have been deepening the South-South cooperation, advising North-South dialogue, and sailing together in international affairs. The G77 and China are important cooperation mechanisms with all the framework of the UN. 
countries of the South have also created such platforms as the BRICS and the African Union to send common messages and shared common interests. The unjust and inequitable international political and economic order from the past continue to have lingering effects. We need to renew our efforts to forge a united, equal, balanced, and inclusive global development partnership, and build a community with a shared future of mankind. The group of 77 also makes statements at various main committees of the General Assembly, other subsidiary bodies, sponsors, and negotiates resolutions. And decisions at major conferences and other meetings held under the United Nations dealing with international economic cooperation and development, as well as the reform of the United Nations. That was Nick Madimba reporting in Uganda. Coming up, Israel rejects a deal that would have left Hamas in charge in Gaza. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platforms, and get ready to dive in. At ten minutes past the hour, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected conditions from Hamas to release hostages and end the conflict. The conditions included Israel's complete withdrawal and Hamas in power in Gaza. The Israeli leader has reaffirmed his opposition to the establishment of a Palestinian state. Families of hostages have protested outside the Prime Minister's residence in Jerusalem. They demanded a deal be done to secure the immediate release of the hostages. 53-year-old John Polin is one of them. His son Hirsch is a hostage. We expect the government to keep us safe. On the morning of October 7th, this government and this prime minister totally failed us. After 107 days, we are demanding that they fix the failure from the 7th, and that can only start with returning all of the hostages alive. Bringing home 136 hostages in bags can never be considered any part of a victory. We demand that the government do its part, bring a deal, get the deal done, and bring home the remaining hostages alive. Israeli cabinet minister and former military chief Gadi Eisenkot says the fate of the hostages should be a priority uh, over other war aims. And he adds a lightning raid to free Israeli hostages is unlikely to succeed. They are scattered in a way that, especially in the underground realm, that the likelihood that they will be released is very low. Still, they are making great efforts and they are searching for every opportunity, but the likelihood is still low, and the idea that it would come from that is an illusion. Over 100 of the estimated 240 hostages taken captive in Gaza were freed in exchange for the release of 240 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons under a deal that was brokered in November by the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell earlier accused Israel of financing the creation of Hamas. His remarks、uh, contradict Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has denied the allegations. Opponents of the Israeli government have accused Netanyahu of boosting Hamas for years.、Uh, the accusers, including some global media, have also claimed Netanyahu's governments allowed Qatari financing of Gaza.、Uh, Borrell added that the only peaceful solution to the conflict includes the creation. 
of a Palestinian state. Houthi attacks on cargo ships passing through the Red Sea have put East Africa's food security at risk. Shipping companies are rerouting from the Suez Canal to the Cape of Good Hope. And as a result, people have to wait longer and pay higher prices for their food. Uh, Neyma Abdirazak reports from Mombasa. Anxiety is high across East Africa. The region's supply chain remains threatened. Hundreds of ships dock at the port of Mombasa, carrying everything from cars to retail. But as shipping lines continue to avoid their usual shorter Red Sea route, amidst recent attacks poised by Houthi rebels, concerns are growing over shipment of essential goods, especially food. With cargo being rerouted away from the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, Concern is growing that delays in delivery, increased insurance costs and potential disruptions to the supply chain could drive up prices and limit the availability of essential food items. It is going to be bad. It, it, it's just starting right now. But uh, considering uh, food is consumed continuously, if you break that supply, it means you already cause, uh, you destabilize the, the supply chain you cause a high demand for something that is not available. So definitely it becomes a dire situation. The clock might also be running out on perishable items. Any delays or interruptions in transportation could result in significant losses. And it's why some might now consider alternatives. If the transit times are longer, that means they'll take longer to reach their destinations, right? So the, the exporters, will prefer a mode of transport that is faster than the longer route that the, the, the ships will take, which means they'll now use the air. That reality will mean inevitable food inflation. <laughs> because of this crisis, right, that means that the, the importers are going to pay more in terms of freight rates. And what happens then, the importer is going to transfer that cost to the final consumer with me and you. So it means that the disposable income that we used to have to buy food will be reduced, meaning that even the quantity of food that these people will buy will be reduced. And for households and consumers, it's a father blow already struggling with rising prices at home. If the price of food items such as these increase, citizens will have to dig deeper into their pockets. Our income is not going up, but the cost of goods keeps on surging. It's not the first time East Africa's food security has been rattled, and the ongoing Red Sea shipping crisis only highlights the region's urgency to strengthen its food supply ecosystem. That was Neyma Abdirazak on the pressure on East Africa's food supply. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the U.S. presidential election two days before the New Hampshire primary. He's now endorsing former President Donald Trump, who won a landslide victory in the Iowa caucuses. DeSantis finished in distant second, followed closely by Nikki Haley. Karina Mitchell has more. Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Defiant words when former South Carolina Governor and United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley made this remark after former President Donald Trump's historic win in Iowa. Now perhaps prophetic in light of the announcement from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis that he is dropping out from the presidential race, telling his supporters in a video posted to X that he no longer sees a clear path to victory. This as Haley has already focused squarely on her former boss. 
75% of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. Chaos follows him. However, the most recent polling shows Trump maintains a double-digit lead over Haley in New Hampshire. Even if Haley did somehow, you know, pull off an upset and, and place first, or even if she comes a close second, is it too little too late for her? What is her path to the nomination? Keep winning. It's a tough path. I mean, every poll that's out there shows that Donald Trump has a sizable lead and, and uh, he certainly has a, a core constituency that's going to be with him no matter what. That constituency includes former GOP primary rivals who have dropped out of the race. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy both endorsing Trump and now DeSantis. It really seems like if Donald Trump wins in New Hampshire, uh, this ball game is, is over. Uh, he'll probably very quickly consolidate the field and we'll be off to the general election. Here in New Hampshire, independents and those who are undeclared make up about 40 percent of registered voters. In the GOP primary, they're allowed to cast their ballots alongside declared Republicans. The thing that Iowa and New Hampshire have in common is that they don't think anybody else except people in Iowa and New Hampshire count. Political science professor Matthew Hale says Haley stands to benefit the most from the state's well-known independent streak while Trump has attempted to turn that advantage against her. Voters we spoke to are divided. Donald Trump, as much as I love him, is an uh, incumbent. He, he has four years. He's a deadbeat as soon as he gets elected. I hope he gets elected, but I want Nikki Haley to be elected. Uh, I died in the wool Democrat, and I will vote for Biden. As the Republican race heats up, so has the rhetoric. Trump mocking Haley's given first name, Namrata, on his social media platform, widely seen as an attack on her Indian heritage. While Haley herself raised eyebrows after comments she made saying the U.S., quote, has never been a racist country. With DeSantis now out of the running, the pressure is on both Haley and Trump to win over his supporters. That was Karina Mitchell on the Republican presidential race after uh, the withdrawal of Ron DeSantis. This past weekend has seen demonstrations across Germany against far-right opposition party AFD. The protests follow a report that right-wing members recently met to discuss the deportation of millions of immigrants. Peter Oliver has more from Berlin. Large parts of the German capital have been shut down as thousands of people are expected to come out and say no to Alternative for Deutschland or the AFD. It's a scene that's been repeated across the country this weekend with police and organisers saying around 300,000 people have taken part in demonstrations across most major German towns and cities. The protests were sparked after it emerged that AFD members had met with far-right extremists at a hotel near Potsdam to discuss what they called re-migration, the forced mass deportation of migrants and even minorities with German citizenship should they come to power. The meeting was also attended by some members of the Conservative CDU party, part of the largest opposition group in the parliament. The news that people with such close links to real political power were discussing re-migration has caused a storm of public opposition. My hope is that the silent political centre, in which I will include myself, will wake up and show itself, and that this will have an impact on this whole right-wing crowd that is hanging around.
We need to raise awareness among our fellow citizens that something is going wrong. And I do believe that if enough pressure is exerted by, let's say, the street, this will also motivate politicians to act and not remain somewhat silent, as they have been so far, but to clearly distance themselves. They haven't done that enough, in my opinion. It had become more in the past few days, but it should have started much earlier. The German government is facing pressure to ban the AFD for its association with far-right extremist groups. But the AFD says they're coming under attack by mainstream parties because of the party's growing popularity in recent months. The party also says the talks were part of larger discussions about Germany's future. Vice-Chancellor and Economy Minister Robert Habeck of the Green Party has warned that any attempt to ban the AFD must be legally watertight, as if it were to fail it would cause massive damage and potentially increase the group's appeal. There are three crucial state elections here in Germany coming up later this year in Brandenburg, Saxony and Thuringia. AFD is expected to put in a good showing in all three, that is, if they are on the ballot. That was Peter Oliver in Berlin. Coming up, deadly winter storms across much of the United States. Discover the realities and responses to our changing climate with Climate Watch. Uncover critical issues such as the Maasai Mara's disrupted wildebeest migration and the drop in the Panama Canal's water levels. Delve into solutions for a sustainable future. Tune in to Climate Watch on your favorite podcast platform. Become more eco-conscious and take action to protect our planet. It's 22 minutes past the hour. U.S. media reports say the ongoing severe winter storm has killed more than 90 people as Arctic winds continue to lash most parts of the country. The extreme weather has also put infrastructure to the test. Owen Fairclough has more. With the U.S. in the grip of a brutal cold snap from coast to coast, the country's infrastructure has been severely tested. It was pretty slippery this morning. Slippery. Yeah, pretty slippery this morning, but you know, we got to do what we got to do to get in there this morning. But not all drivers made it. Multiple blizzards over the last fortnight have left some roads littered with the wrecks of vehicles claimed by the treacherous conditions. Thousands of flights have been cancelled. On Sunday alone, around 2,000 flights, either landing or departing the U.S., were either cancelled or delayed. And rail services around Chicago and Portland, Oregon, were also disrupted. Utility infrastructure has also been pushed to breaking point, especially in the Portland area, where at one point some 120,000 properties were without electricity. But while Texas was among southern states experiencing unusual Arctic temperatures, its electricity grid has largely held up. Several hundred customers were still without power on Sunday compared to winter storms in 2021, which cut electricity for more than 3 million people. Forecasters say higher than average temperatures expected over the next week will help much of the country thaw out. That was Owen Fairclough on the the deadly, uh, deadly winter storm in the United States. Peru's hoping to promote itself as a premium bird-watching destination after the South American country became the world's leader in avian diversity at the beginning of the year. It now boasts nearly 1,900 bird species. Uh, Dan Collins reports from a bird-watching hotspot just outside of Lima. Birders beware. It's time to update the guidebook for Peru. By its own count, the country now has more bird species than any other. Ornithologists, park guides and those in the tourism business came together to celebrate the news at Los Pantanos de Villa, a coastal wetland and wildlife refuge in southern Lima. 
Peru is a paradise for bird watchers and it's long been one of the top three countries in terms of number of species of bird. Now it's officially number one with 1,879 registered species. By registering 19 more bird species in 2023, Peru brought in the new year with a new record, 10 more than Colombia and 20 more than Brazil. According to the registry of the South American Classification Committee, there are 1,869 bird species in Colombia and 1,859 in Brazil. Ornithologist Fernando Angulo led the count, confirming sightings by amateur bird watchers. Colombia is not going to stand idly by and probably will respond and make a similar strategy. But at least for a while, Peru is number one for birds. Peru is one of the world's 17 mega biodiverse countries and contains 28 of the 32 climates on the planet, from coastal desert to mountains to the Amazon rainforest. Scientists say it is that diversity that makes Peru a magnet for birders. 2013, I was going to travel the world and I came here and it's just perfect. Why go anywhere else? You've got the Pacific, you've got the desert, you've got the Andes, you've got Amazonia, you've got 1,000, almost 900 species. Now the government and the private sector are looking to position the country for birdwatching tourism. Tourism Minister Juan Carlos Matthews said birdwatchers accounted for 15% of the 2.5 million tourists who visited Peru last year. Principally the United States, France, Spain, Germany and Canada are the main countries for birdwatching tourists. Peru's national parks cover about 15% of the country but they can only be protected if ecotourism is an economic option for local communities. This means such a lot because tourism is an activity that moves local economies. The fact that a tourist visits us will contribute to the fact that we continue to take care of our biodiversity. As Peru's economy tries to crawl out of recession, a new type of ecotourist could be just the boost it needs. That was Dan Collins on birdwatching in Peru. A top U.S. economist says the tourism boom in Harbin tells a more complete story about the Chinese economy than economic data alone. Uh, Paul Grunwald is the chief economist at Standard & Poor Global Ratings, and he says it's not effective to only talk about numbers without telling any stories. If we need a bunch of numbers for a numerical forecast, if your world is just putting numbers into spreadsheets, and some people do that, uh, that's what you need. I can give you a number for any economy, or I can give you a number for uh, an economic variable. So that's kind of the mechanical part of the job, is to also make sure that we have a good narrative to, uh, to tell the story about the economic. Standard & Poor's issues uh, predictive data and analysis reports every year. Uh, Grunwald says that such data is often affected by a news cycle that tends to focus on disasters and crises. He says it's more important to bring numbers to life by telling stories that are balanced in their worldview. Given the dangers and the risks at that point, the news cycle tends to focus on the bad things rather than the uh, uh, the good things. We should, of course, be balanced in how we view the world. So I think the lesson is not just the modeling, but the the, the narrative and the storytelling and the and the convincing. And uh, Harbin has become one of the hottest urban to or hottest tourism destinations in China this winter due to a nationwide enthusiasm for winter sports.
We're at 28 minutes past the hour. Checking the forecast ahead of the break in Beijing's down to minus 10 on Monday evening. Tuesday will be sunny with the high of plus 1. Nanchung's been hit by a strong cold wave. It'll have moderate snow and a sharp drop to minus 4 tonight. Tomorrow we'll have sunny skies with a high of plus 2. And local authorities have warned of possible icy conditions across the city. Elsewhere in Asia, Islamabad's at 3 this evening. Sunny in 17 on Tuesday. Vientiane's at 18 overnight. Tomorrow's cloudy in 27 degrees. Phnom Penh's 24 overnight, uh, tomorrow sunny in 35. In Africa, Nairobi will see a light rainfall with a high of 27 on Tuesday. Kampala's 23 overnight, tomorrow uh, a light rainfall with a high of 25 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, a landslide in Yunnan province has buried at least 40 people as snow and cold uh, hampers search and rescue efforts. Uh, Israel's prime minister has rejected a ceasefire proposal for the Gaza Strip that would have left Hamas in charge of the embattled enclave. And severe winter storms affecting much of the U.S. have killed scores of people. Shane Bigham with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Monday. Still to come. In business, China's efforts to develop the silver economy. In sports, looking ahead to the quarterfinals at the Australian Open. In culture and entertainment, a lantern fair in Shanghai's iconic Yuyuan Garden. To contact us, you can email radio at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. First of all, with the day's headline news, here's Do Hongyu. Thank you, Shane. Efforts are ongoing in southwest China to find people trapped under the rubble after a landslide in Yunnan province on Monday. More than 40 people from 18 households are buried in, in Liangshui village. Sub-zero temperatures and continuous snowfall in the region are complicating search and rescue efforts. Chinese President Xi Jinping has ordered efforts to protect the lives and property of the people affected. Yunnan has launched a disaster relief emergency response. The Red Cross Society of China has sent disaster relief supplies, including tents, quilts, and wind-resistant jackets, to the affected area. The Chinese National Observatory says the first cold snap of 2024 is moving south, bringing snowfall to central and southern China. The National Meteorological Center has forecast heavy snowfall in Guizhou and Hunan provinces, with some areas bracing for severe snowstorms. Parts of Jiangxi province and Guangxi Zhuang Autonomous Region will experience heavy snowfall. The cold wave has also brought the first snowfall of the year to some regions in Guangdong and Fujian. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected conditions by Hamas to release hostages and end the conflict. The conditions included Israel's complete withdrawal with Hamas in power in Gaza. The Israeli leader has reaffirmed his opposition to the establishment of a Palestinian state. Netanyahu is facing protests at home from families of Israeli hostages still being held in Gaza. Meanwhile, intense fighting continues in the Gaza Strip. Israeli forces and Hamas fighters have clashed in several areas, from Jubalia in the north to Hayunis in the south. 
The British Defence Ministry says it'll upgrade a missile system using in, used in the Red Sea. It'll spend more than 510 million U.S. dollars to equip its current Sea Viper air defence system with missiles featuring a new warhead and software to counter ballistic missile threats. Over the past month, U.S. and British naval forces in the Red Sea have shot down drones and missiles fired by Yemen's Houthi group. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has ended his presidential campaign and endorsed former President Donald Trump just two days before the New Hampshire primary. DeSantis was once viewed as the Republicans' best shot at moving past Trump, but he made the decision less than a week after his deflating loss to Trump in Iowa. His departure leaves Trump and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley the last major candidates remaining in the race ahead of Tuesday's Republican primary. Haley said on Sunday she had not spoken to DeSantis over the weekend and has no, no idea about his plans, while Donald Trump celebrated DeSantis's endorsement of his candidacy and a campaign stop in New Hampshire. The winner of this year's Republican nominating contest will likely take on President Joe Biden in the general election in November. Tens of thousands of people are continuing their protests against the far right in cities across Germany. The protests came amid a report that right-wing extremists had met to discuss the deportation of millions of migrants, including some with German citizenship. One of the protests took place in Cologne. I'm demonstrating against the fact that the things that we all learned at school, that we all know, can still seem to repeat themselves. And I'm here to show that the silent majority is no longer silent because we are the majority. And I think our democracy is a stable democracy and it must never, never be attacked in the way the alternative for Germany is currently attacking it. Organizers say over 50,000 people took part in the demonstration in Cologne on Sunday. Other German cities, including Berlin, have also seen demonstrations against the far right. The UN Secretary General says he's hopeful that an African nation could soon get a permanent seat on the Security Council after its five permanent members supported the proposal. Antonio Guterres said it is a flagrant injustice that there is not a single African permanent member of the Security Council. He says the reason is that most of the African countries were not independent when the UN institutions were created. For the first time, I'm hopeful that uh, uh, at least a partial reform of the UN Security Council uh, could be possible for this flagrant injustice to be corrected and for Africa to have at least one permanent member in the Security Council. It is not guaranteed, uh, nothing that of course depends on the Secretary General, it depends exclusively on member states, on the General Assembly, but for the first time I think there are reasons to be hopeful. African nations have been pushing for broader-based permanent membership of the UN Security Council. Right, thank you very much. That was Do Hongyu with Headline News. This is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China's efforts to develop the silver economy. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast 
We'll see you there. 37 past the hour now. Turning to business and starting with the mainland market numbers, uh, those markets closed lower on Monday. Timothy Pope has more. The Shanghai Composite Index sank about 2.7% to close at its lowest level since early April 2020. Uh, that's below uh, 2,800 points. The Shenzhen component lost 3.5% and the CSI 300 fell 1.6%. It recovered from a brief uh, dip that took it below uh, 3,200 points, but it's still hovering around a five-year low. Every sector was down, uh, only about 50, uh, 50 stocks of the more than 2,100 that make up the Shanghai Composite Rose. And that was Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index dropped nearly 2.3%. In Japan, the Nikkei increased more than 1.6%. The Chinese Commerce Ministry says it'll actively promote the development of the silver economy, better meet the needs of the elderly population, and improve the well-being of the elderly. The country has released a guideline to boost the silver economy as part of its efforts to address the challenges of an aging population. The ministry says it'll mainly focus on improving and expanding the household service industry and strengthening international cooperation. People aged 60 and older make up over 20% of the Chinese population. According to the top economic regulator, developing the silver economy is a powerful step to promote high-quality development and support China's modernization. The National Development and Reform Commission also says the silver economy involves a wide range of areas, a long industrial chain, and diverse business formats. And for more on the silver economy, Michael Wang spoke with Professor John Gong with the University of International Business and Economics. Professor Gong, according to estimates by Chinese policymakers, by the year 2035, China's so-called silver economy could be worth some four trillion U.S. dollars. What kind of opportunities do you think that presents for not just domestic but also international uh, companies here in China as well? I think we should turn the table and not view it sort of in a negative light and 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 see it from a, a opportunity perspective. I think there are many more opportunities associated with the, the silver economy. Uh, first of all, I, I don't think that people or by the time they reach 60 years old, they're just going to sit back home and doing nothing. Uh, you know, people reaching 60 years old are still very healthy and they can still work. So I think, um, you know, this talk about uh, China's population uh, going down can be somewhat mitigated by just extending people's work ages, right? I mean, they can work longer years. So I think, you know, that's the first. And the second thing is that there are many more opportunities and also new services and technologies that can be developed to cater to that segment of the population. Uh, and I think Chinese companies actively pursuing that. Um, so, so I think um, you know, from that perspective, it's a, uh, it's it's not a, it's not a something bad. I think it's an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, we, we shouldn't have this defeatist attitude that the economy is going down because of aging population. Well, I do want to ask you, uh, in terms of what innovation, perhaps uh, China's aging population is driving when it comes to, let's say, trends in healthcare, mm -hmm. trends in financial services as well. Yeah, I think first of all, you know, it, it, there would be new technologies to make people a lot more healthier, a lot, a lot healthier, a lot more um, able to work. Uh, I think you know it, it's all about extending people's working ages. Uh, even even I think people when they get into their you know 60s, they can even do some manual work. I think mm -hmm. so. So I think you know these kind of uh, technologies that uh, that make the um, people in that age group can still um, be effective in society is probably. Uh, 
good business opportunities for many companies to pursue. Another thing related with with healthcare, also with um, with home care. You know, for example, mm. uh, uh, catering to people who really need medical needs. Um, how do you, uh, you know? lead a retirement life that's uh, uh, stay away from kids and all these kind of things. That was Professor John Gong with the University of International Business and Economics offering his insights on China's aging population and the silver economy. Official data shows that China's express delivery volume surpassed 132 billion packages in 2023. That was an increase of more than 19% and ranking first in the world for the 10th consecutive year. The cross-provincial express delivery volume reached more than 115 billion, registering an increase of 20.5%. The international and Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan express delivery volume exceeded 3 billion with an increase of 52%. Small and medium-sized enterprises across China are feeling optimistic as their improved performances last year boosted market expectations. Some are tapping into overseas markets, while others are developing new equipment. From the beginning of this year, our products have been shipped to countries including the U.S., Sweden, Japan and Turkey. We are investing about 200 million yuan into research and development, from innovative technology to industrialization. This year's investment is said to be the highest yet. Last year, the procurement index for SMEs stayed positive. Authorities say this year they'll have to uh, they'll launch more measures in boosting research and development and financing promotion to empower SMEs to play a greater role in industrial chains in the manufacturing sector. In recent years, many local governments across China have rolled out wide-ranging measures to promote the development of key supply chains. Cao Chufeng spoke with engineers and experts in Guangdong province, one of the biggest manufacturing hubs in China, on its latest measures in this regard. Back in 2021, Guangdong became the first provincial government to include a plan to implement a supply chain chief plus owner system into its work report. Supply chain chiefs are appointed top local officials that are responsible for overseeing specific industries, while supply chain owners are key businesses in industries able to drive the development of the whole industrial chain. The system promotes cooperation between the government and market to drive the safety and development of supply chains. This system aims to combine the forces of the market and government, creating a proactive government and an efficient market. The primary tasks of supply chain chiefs are to integrate resources and introduce supporting policies. Supply chain owners need to be entities capable of driving the development of the entire industrial chain. Guangzhou Automobile Group, or GAC Group, is a supply chain owner for both new energy and smart connected vehicle industries in Guangdong. Its new energy brand, Ion, does business with several hundred supply chain enterprises or projects within the province, directly driving an annual output of around 2.8 billion US dollars. And many suppliers are connected to guarantee swift production. After users place a vehicle order through our app, the intelligent production scheduling system can complete factory scheduling and distribute component orders within four hours. The real-time sharing of production progress allows 23 nearby suppliers to achieve synchronized delivery. GAC Group, along with other organizations, 
also set up an investment fund at the end of last year to invest in more projects in targeted industries. Desi SV, another supply chain owner of smart connected vehicles, has also publicly announced similar plans. And of course, there is the question of whether such a system would help the supply chain owners squeeze the profit of other companies along the chain. But one expert say the system is really about aiming for a win-win situation for everyone. If we can collectively expand the cake, everyone gets a larger share, right? In the future, competition is not merely between individual companies. It involves individual enterprises aligning with the entire industrial chain to compete with other companies. Professor Chen says the system aligns with China's plan to create globally competitive businesses as well as industries that align with the strategic needs of the country. That was Cao Chufang reporting. The ASEAN Tourism Forum 2024 will open in Laos on Wednesday. Uh, the opening ceremony in the capital will be followed by a meeting of ASEAN tourism ministers on Thursday and Friday under the theme Quality and Responsible Tourism, Sustaining ASEAN Future. Uh, ASEAN Secretary General Dr. Gao Gim Horn will lead uh, the ASEAN Secretariat delegation at the opening ceremony. The doctor will also hold bilateral meetings with ministers and representatives from ASEAN member states and ASEAN dialogue partners to discuss ways to further strengthen the tourism sector across the region. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, looking ahead to the quarterfinals at the Australian Open. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. 47 minutes past the hour now. Turning to sports, and here's Yangua. Thank you, Shane. In tennis action from the Australian Open, Novak Djokovic demolished Andre Manorino in straight sets to reach the quarterfinals at the Grand Slam for the 58th time, equaling Roger Federer's records. Djokovic dominated the first two sets, winning 12 straight games before a closing out match in just over 100 minutes. The world number one called it his best performance at Melbourne Park so far this year. Well, I have to say yes, obviously the first two sets. Yeah, one of the best sets I played in a while. Um, and, you know, I really wanted to lose that game in the third set because uh, the, the, ten- the tension was building up so much in the stadium. Um, I, just needed, uh, I just needed to get that one out of the way so I can refocus on, uh, on what I need to do to close out the match. So, you know, I've, uh, I played great, you know, from the first to the last point. In the quarterfinals, Djokovic will face Taylor Fritz, who reached the last eight in Australia for the first time after beating last year's runner-up Stefano Tsitsipas. Fritz has never beaten Djokovic in their previous eight matchups. Elsewhere, Yannick Sinner hasn't dropped a single set on route to the quarterfinals with the fourth seed knocking out Karen Kachanov. Andrei Rublev rallied to beat home favorite Alex Deminao in five-set battle. In the men's doubles, Chinese player Zhang Zhijian and his Czech partner Thomas Mahach stunned the former champions Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury in a comeback victory. Zhang thus became the first male player from the Chinese mainland to break into the men's doubles last eight at a Grand Slam event. 
In the women's competition at Melbourne Park, Russian teenager Mira Andreeva's hopes of becoming the youngest Australian Open quarter-finalist since Martina Higgins in 1997 ended on Sunday. The 16-year-old squandered an opening set win to see former French Open champion Barbara Krejcikova rally for a 4-6-6-3-6-2 victory. But Andreeva says she's happy about her campaign. I think I had a good tournament overall. I played the fourth round uh, for the second time in my life. Um, I hope it's not the last. There's a lot of positive things to take uh, from this trip. Uh, uh, my last match uh, was very great. Uh, I, I have beaten my uh, idol here. Yeah, we'll be very looking forward to coming back here next year. Krejcikova next faces reigning champion Arena Sabalenka, who produced another convincing performance by powering past unseeded American Amanda Anismova 6-3-6-2. American fourth seed Coco Gauff east past Magdalena Frech 6-1-6-2. European football English Premier League leader Liverpool has moved five points clear with cruising 4-0 victory at Bournemouth. Darwin Nunez and Diogo Jota both scored second-half doubles to make up for the loss of top scorer Mohamed Salah, who is on international duty with Egypt. Manager Jurgen Klopp says the team struggled in the first half but managed to find the pace after the break. We should start games better, but um, it's about 90 Eight minutes, interestingly. Today um, is really, uh, it's about to win the games in the end. And um, as long as you stay in the game, pretty much everything what happens in the game is allowed. Uh, you don't have to perform 98 minutes on an absolute top level. It's pretty rare. And today, step by step, we found a way in the game and won it. In Spain, Real Madrid avoided an embarrassing setback at home against the last-placed Almeria with a 3-2 comeback victory thanks to a stoppage-time winner from Dani Carvajal. The dramatic late victory kept Madrid one point behind Girona, which continued its surprising run for the title by routing relegation-threatened Sevilla 5-1. In Germany, Bayern Munich suffered a 1-0 home loss to Werder Bremen and dented its chances of catching Bundesliga leader Bayer Leverkusen. Former Bayern player Michel Weiser scored the only goal to leave the defending champion seven points off Leverkusen. In the AFC Asian Cup, Saudi Arabia advanced to the knockout stage with a game to spare after beating nine-man Kyrgyzstan 2-0. Goals in each half put the three-time champions in first place in Group F. Saudi is two points ahead of Thailand, which earlier played out a goalless draw with Oman in the other game of the group. Cristiano Ronaldo has arrived in China for a 10-day tour of the country with the Saudi club Al Nasser. Ronaldo and his teammates are playing two friendlies in Shenzhen, first against Shanghai Xinhua on Wednesday, before playing Zhejiang three days later. However, Al Nasser is skeptical about Ronaldo's availability for the two matches, as the 38-year-old superstar is still recovering from a calf injury he sustained in the Saudi Pro League. Tickets for those two games sold out in hours when they were released earlier this month. It's the eighth time Ronaldo has visited China. Inaugural Chinese Super League champion Shenzhen FC has quit the professional football league. The club says it failed to pass the professional league's admission for the 2024 season due to debt issues. Founded in 1994, Shenzhen FC won the first CSL championship in 2004. The outfit finished the bottom in the CSL last season, being relegated to the second tier. 
and finally at the Gangwon Winter Youth Olympics. Chinese skater Li Jingzi won the gold medal in the women's 1,000-meter short track race, and her teammates Yang Jingru and Su Wen. Yang earlier won the women's 1,500-meter to claim China's first gold medal at the event. Li attributed the success to teamwork on the track. The daily trainings are really tiring, but when it comes to the competition, the desire to win overshadows the tiredness. I want to thank my teammate Yang Jingru, who assisted me to achieve this goal. Meanwhile, China's Zhang Xinjie clinched the men's 1,000-meter short track gold medal. The 16-year-old has now won one gold and one silver medal in two days. Zhang Bohao crossed the line first, but was disqualified due to his contact with a South Korean skater. Right, thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with sports. Coming up in culture and entertainment, a lantern fair in Shanghai's iconic Yuyuan Garden. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men, Days of Future Past. You are listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. We're at 54 minutes past the hour. Turning to culture and entertainment, a grand lantern fair is kicked off at Shanghai's iconic Yuyuan Garden to celebrate the upcoming Spring Festival. Ubin spoke to the visitors and fair organizers. A tradition for 29 consecutive years. Shanghai's iconic Yuyuan Garden officially kicked off its lantern fair on Sunday, set to last 40 days to celebrate the Year of the Dragon. And the first day saw visitors pouring in from far and wide. The most important thing is the light for me. It's uh, very nice. The lanterns on the bridge are definitely highlights of the fair. It's magnificent, just like described in Asian mythology. The designs of the lanterns are inspired by the Chinese mythology writings, Shanghai Jing, or classics of the mountains and seas, out of which the Yuyuan Garden created legendary creatures and saw great success last year. This year, it focused on the seas, where dragons in China are said to reside. The Yuyuan Garden has created different types of dragons. Some are strong and powerful, while others are thin and elegant. Together with other sea creatures, they paint a vivid picture of the sea world in Chinese mythology. The main giant lantern sets use the design of a dragon, the zodiac animal. And around the bridge, we presented the animals written about in ancient Chinese literature. And for the first time ever, the lanterns of Yuyuan can also be enjoyed overseas, lighting up the Jardin d'Acclimatation in Paris. In this year, that celebrates 60 years of diplomatic relations between China and France. The space is illuminated by more than 60 large lantern sets and 2,000 traditional lanterns, shipped all the way from China. The Lantern Fair in France was lit up on December 15, 2023. It was welcomed by French visitors over the past month. It's a good example of the blend of Chinese and Western cultures. We also hope the citizens of both places could spend a wonderful Chinese New Year with the Lantern Fairs. The Lantern Fairs in Shanghai and Paris will last until the end of February, when the traditional Lantern Festival is held, marking the end of Spring Festival. That was Ubin in Shanghai.
Kashgar in the Xinjiang region is a key city on the ancient Silk Road. It functioned as a major trade and commercial hub. After millennia of changes and development, the Kashgar Grand Bazaar today is not only the largest international trade market in northwest China, but also serves as a distinctive symbol of the ancient city. The bazaar is attracting visitors from all over the world with local delicacies, and one of them is yogurt sticky rice dumplings. Food vlogger Wang Peng explains what's so special about this variant. The sticky rice dumplings in Xinjiang have no fillings, so we add our favorite snacks such as yogurt and jam and toppings. The dumplings have become a specialty in Xinjiang. Well, today's bazaar in Kashgar also serves other food including braised beef, noodles, barbecue and pomegranate juice. Hollywood monster film Godzilla Kong, The New Empire, is set for a theatrical release in Chinese mainland cinemas on March 29th. For most of human civilization, we believed that life could only exist new film directed by Adam Weingard will be the fifth edition to the MonsterVerse. It'll feature Godzilla and Kong joining forces once again against a new threat. The film comes after Legendary Pictures' 2021 installment, Godzilla vs. Kong, which raked in over 1.2 billion yuan, or 167 million U.S. dollars, on the Chinese mainland. We're at 58 minutes past the hour. Checking the forecast before we go for the day. And uh, Beijing's down to minus 10 on Monday evening. Uh, Tuesday, we'll see sunny skies with a high of plus 1. Nanchung will have moderate snowfall with a sharp drop to minus 4 tonight. Tomorrow is getting sunny skies and a high of plus 2. Elsewhere in Asia, Islamabad's at 3 degrees this evening. It's sunny and 17 on Tuesday. BNTN's at 18 overnight, then cloudy and 27. Phnom Penh's at 24 this evening, sunny and 35 tomorrow. In Africa, Nairobi will see a light rainfall and a high of 27 on Tuesday. Kampala is at 23 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, uh, a light rainfall and 25 degrees. Juba is at 26 this evening, then cloudy and 38. And finally to Oceania, Port Vila is at 24 degrees this evening. Tomorrow, moderate rainfall and 29 degrees Celsius. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, a landslide in Yunnan province has buried at least 40 people as snow and cold hampers search and rescue efforts. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together.